Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, September 3rd, 2020. You think you've got a weird hobby? Well, we talked to a guy in the UK who's on a mission to adjudicate public benches. What is the Chinese government doing to the Uyghur people? There's really no other term for it but ethnic cleansing. We hear an eyewitness account of the deadly boat crash at Woodbine Beach. And following the death of Odorus Arungus, the creature known as Blothar traveled to Earth to assume the role of lead vocalist for the band Guar. And yes, we talked to him. All of this starts right now. We're going across the big water. To the UK, you know, as we were musing aloud moments ago about certain pastimes and hobbies, a lot of people collect stamps, coins, cards, needlepoint, and all the rest, making macrame owls. And then there's Sam Wilmot. Sam Wilmot is basically doing a public service in the pursuit of one of his simple goals, and that is to find the best place to sit. What do I mean by that? Well, he rates park benches. Sam Wilmot has joined us from the UK here on The Oakley Show. Well, not just yet, I'm told. Okay. <laughs> We're Sam is, yeah, sitting this one out. And, you know, uh, I don't actually blame Sam for that. Uh, I'm almost inclined to believe I'd like to join Sam in that regard sometimes. <laughs> By the way, uh, we will also talk about the New, New Jersey Nets hiring uh, Steve Nash. I don't know if you follow basketball, but, you know, I don't as much as I once did. And I'll tell you, I've stated this for the public record. I was so disappointed in the NBA early last year when they were talking up that, uh, you know, tamping down any kind of suggestion that there would be uh, solidarity with the pro-democracy group in uh, Hong Kong because they didn't want to rile communist China because that's probably their biggest market and the shoe factory, Nike, uh, who runs the NBA effectively and all the players with the big shoe deals. I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds except to say, you know, another issue that the communist Chinese should be vilified for, we're going to talk about after 4 o'clock. Now reports surfacing of uh, forced sterilizations, uh, wombs being taken out of women. It's basically ethnic cleansing, a form of genocide. And uh, we'll be talking to the director of global advocacy for the Uyghur Human Rights Project, because these people are sadly forgotten, and uh, conveniently so, by some quarters. However, I've digressed yet again, because Sam Wilmot is now with us on his bench somewhere in the UK. Sam, how are you doing? Yeah, not bad, thank you. And yourself? <laughs> I'm good. Are you seated? Yeah, so if I'm honest, I, I'm actually out in a place called Malmesbury at the moment, so I managed to, to find a bench there. Oh, you did. Well, listen, uh, I understand that you go all over the UK and rate benches. What prompted this? Um, so it's something that started at university as a, as a sort of a reason and a chance to just explore the local area and for an excuse to get out of house. And so <laughs> it's just something that started off as a joke. And it's now one of those jokes that you just don't know when to quit. But it's picking up a little bit of a following. So I'm certainly not quitting just yet. All right, so how many benches you figure in your time having adopted this hobby that you've actually rated? So we're up around 180 at the moment, 
and it's something that's going to continue to grow. I've had messages from people asking what I'm going to do for the 200th anniversary. You want a special bench or uh, a sort of a, a flick back through the ones I've done so far. So you've got to keep that in mind. Yeah, when you say we're up to 180, uh, it's like you're including somebody else. Be honest, uh, this is a solo venture, isn't it? Yeah, so it's solo <laughs> in the sense that it's me doing the rating and the write-ups, but I've always got to take somebody with me just to take the photos. So whether that's a family member or uh, my girlfriend or friends, it, it's who, whoever's there, and there has been the odd occasion where I've asked a stranger as well. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, this sounds rather, let's say, uh, unique, if not out and out peculiar. So what constitutes a good bench, a great bench, and conversely, uh, just not a good bench? And, and what do you give them, a 1 to 10 rating system? Yeah, so I work on a, a 1 to 10 rating system. I usually save the, the lower marks for benches, sort of, from local councils and constituents that have implemented a sense of... Um, or something that prevents people lying down on them, something that's sort of known as an anti-homeless bench. So they get the lowest marks, no matter what the bench is or where it is. They're always the lowest. Um, and then the best marks really go to benches that have got um, the best views. They've got solid armrests, a back, back support, um, a little bit of a curve in the seat for even pressure, um, something with a plaque, so a memorial to read, and something that's got a concrete base just to stop your shoes getting dusty and dirty. <laughs> All right. I like the idea, you know, the anti-homeless bench. So uh, you're seeing this sort of through a social conscience, if you will, uh, <laughs> ascribing that to benches. So uh, in this matter, are you rating indoor as well as outdoor benches or strictly outdoor? Uh, so we have done some indoor, or I have done some indoor, um, including sort of shopping centers or Tesco. But I've also done ones in sort of social clubs and sport pavilions. So it really just depends where the bench is, and we'll uh, look to grab it. Something that's different and unique every time. So, Sam, where do you post your ratings on these benches and the pictures? Uh, so, so it goes up on my Instagram page. That's the only sort of social media I use. It's called Rate This Bench, and slowly over the past sort of week or so, I picked up a number of new followers, so they're always welcome. Yeah, I can understand. I mean, this could even go international. You could franchise this. I mean, this sounds to me like it's uh, as because, you know, we have a lot of benches, public and otherwise, and I, too, have noticed, you know, some are wood, some are steel, uh, some, you know, are shaped aluminum and so on and so forth. Do you have a, a favorite per se? I mean, like, what would score? You've given us criteria that might be a perfect 10, but uh, where would said bench be located in the U.K.? Oh, perfect 10. If I, I've never given a perfect 10. Uh, the highest I've given so far is a 9. So... It's one of those, I don't know whether I'm looking for perfection or it's just something that one day I'll stumble across it and think this will be the best bench I'll ever rate. So it's really quite difficult. But sea views or countryside views and something as big and sturdy, I, I'm not a small lad, so something that's going to take my weight and a, and a friend is always good. So that, that scores highly. And it, for me, it's a, a lot about the view. Uh-huh. And uh, do you find, like, some of the older benches might actually have some craftsmanship to them as opposed to something just, you know, prefab and slapped together? Uh, have you noticed that? Yeah, definitely. So um, some of the old or sort of the older iron ones we see um, have sort of different engravings and embroideries on that just current wooden benches that have been stuck together for convenience just don't have. So, yeah, they're, 
there's always a little bit of history in every bunch. Would you include church pews in that? Yeah, so it's not something I've done a great deal of. It's one of those uh, I don't want to border on the line of being disrespectful. Um, But I've done benches in sort of churchyards uh, and so on, but pews are are limited. I, I think I've done one which was watching a local band play. They had it in a sort of a, a grimy basement. So I did rate that one. <laughs> okay. It takes you far and wide. A fascinating hobby. Uh, and so you're rating benches. Rate this bench. Is that what it is, the uh, website that uh, you post your Instagram? Yeah, uh... yeah so rate this bench. No, no spaces, all one word. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, in case anybody wants to follow up, and would you also solicit pictures from other people in other quarters, uh, say here in Canada? Maybe uh, you know they're taking a picture of a bench, giving their own thoughts on that, and they can file as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's something that I absolutely love is, is receiving um, guest reviews, I call them, and we've had them from everywhere. So we've had them sort of Australia, India. I wrote a, a piece at university on Bengal and. A few days later, somebody had sent me a picture from Bengal. So that, that was something that I, I thought was really special. Well, you got yourself a hobby. Everybody should have one, and uh, that's yours. Very unique, as I said at the outset. I appreciate your sharing your passion with us this afternoon. Uh, stay well. No stay problem. seated. Cool. <laughs> all right, yeah, all right Sam. What about? All right. We'll check in later. There you go. Sam Wilmot again. Rate this bench. Well, as I say, everybody needs a hobby. One topic that uh, is certainly worthy of discussion and perhaps is flying under the radar for far too many is the situation with the Uyghur minority in northwest China. And uh, Louisa Grieve has joined us on the line, the Director of Global Advocacy for the Uyghur Human Rights Project, because this needs to be mentioned and uh, addressed in a very, very serious form. Louisa, good to have you here on The Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Louisa, when it comes to the Uyghurs, by the way, uh, would you say they're the latest forgotten ethnic minority that uh, we failed to address adequately? Certainly. This is uh, a a group of people whose very culture and identity under severe threat. And because the Chinese government is able to maintain such severe secrecy, such surveillance, such keeping the press out, reporters cannot go there. It is kept from world headlines. Tell us about the Uyghurs. I mean, in general, I understand there's 11 million. They're Turkic Muslims for the most part in the northwest part of the country. Uh, Is there anything more we need to know? I mean, what else could we uh, impart that this is somebody, you know, these are uh, folks who are living in a, a virtual internment camp, I guess. That's right. The Uyghur people are Turkic. And what that means is they're not Chinese. So I've, I've talked to Chinese friends of mine who even if an official is quoted who was coming from one of the eastern cities and went out to the Uyghur region, which is basically you can picture it just like Tibet, right? Mountainous, um, remote, gorgeous parts of the uh, mountain ranges living up, li- leading up to the Himalayas. And then going there and saying, wow, this isn't China. That's what a Chinese official himself said. Whereas the Chinese government's line is, this is an inseparable part of Chinese territory from ancient times. Uh, and it's Chinese, Chinese, Chinese. But I, I want re- listeners to know they, they have their own language. Like some people ask me, well, what language do the Uyghurs speak? It's a very simple answer. They speak Uyghur. Uh, it's part of the Turkic language. They have their own long tradition of poetry, history, architecture, religious scholarship, 
cuisine. I don't know. Maybe some of your listeners have been to the Uyghur restaurant. There are a scattering of them in Toronto and other cities. So that I do encourage people to go to a Uyghur restaurant and say this is its its own culture and its own people. Um, and that's that's one thing to keep in mind about the people of East Turkestan. And yet there seem to be credible claims that what's taking place with the Uyghur minority is ethnic cleansing, uh, perhaps even genocide, is it? Short answer is yes. And this has been going on for four years. So you're absolutely right that this has been a hidden story. You'd think that in our modern connected world, we do hear about tragedies everywhere, whether it's um, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, or you know, police brutality in one of our cities. We also hear about earthquakes in Peru, but we don't hear something that's been happening for four years to the Uyghurs. And actually, they don't, they really, they're a minority compared to the Chinese population. But if you think of them as they're living in their own homeland, um, their homeland is, they call East Turkestan, that's just the local name for it. And uh, they, they are not a minority there. It's, it's their homeland. Um, and it's kind of like when the Soviet Union broke up, right? Then all of a sudden you had all these stands and different republics. Well, it turns out they really were um, homelands of different peoples all along, but we called them the Soviet Union. That's the same story with China, calling Tibet part of China, calling um, East Turkestan as a part of the Chinese governments under their control. And in their homeland, they have been suffering a really surprisingly high-tech police state because a lot of people think of it as pretty remote. Right, It borders Mongolia, it borders Russia, it borders Afghanistan, Pakistan. And you might think, um, not Pakistan, or Afghanistan and Kazakhstan. It's so remote. How could there be a high-tech police state? The reason is the Chinese government wants to control it so badly. You know, every Uyghur has to have download an app that surveils everywhere they go. Kind of sounds like a movie plot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in uh, this far-flung region on the planet, uh, but as you say, uh, it is almost out of sci-fi or one of these dystopian uh, futuristic things. Tell me, though, about uh, the way the ethnic cleansing may be playing out, because I'm hearing harrowing stories of forced sterilizations, birth control, uh, even wombs from women being removed. Uh, How credible are these reports and to what extent? Extremely credible. Uh, The... Government's uh, repression has included literally disappearing people from their homes and throwing them into mass detention camps. And that's the first the world knew about this three years ago. And the question is, why? What for? How are you going to put estimates of at least a million, uh, possibly 1.8 million, possibly more people? How do you hold that many people out of a population of 12 million, 12 or more million, uh, which is the weaker population? It is clearly the government's intent to do something on a big scale the surveillance, the camps, which are full of uh, stories. A few people have managed to escape. We literally have just a little over 30 people who've managed to get out alive and then get out of China to a free country to tell their story. Some of them are in Kazakhstan, some of them are in Turkey. We have four in the United States right now, literally four people and out of, out of millions who've made it out alive, and they're telling about torture, dehydration, starvation diet, their hair is shaved before they go in, uh, subject to constant indoctrination, like you have to shout slogans. I believe in the Communist Party. I believe in President Xi Jinping. I don't believe in religion. I was wrong to believe in God. So more of a totalitarian nightmare, maybe not those futuristic ones, but more like Stalin's gulag or, or even, you know, a Nazi camp where everyone is just 
crowded in and what's happening next people can you know wouldn't be surprising if they give up hope um if they're in these camps and there's forced labor as well so the parallels to history's past horrors are very very strong and those women who are not, who are not in the camps how could it be that there's a report now that you're talking about a woman who worked as a nurse for 20 years and she routinely conducted uh, you know gave sterilized people you know removed the hysterectomy a, a removal of the uterus um, against people's will. That's that's the horrifying thing. Um, in, in those abuses have happened in other pla- in places in China, but it's very systematic uh, for the Uyghur women, um, and especially when it's it's a group under threat, and it's basically saying we're preventing babies from being born, and what where will the next generation come from? It, it is an ethnic cleansing like that. And even a form of genocide, again, with Louisa Grieve, director of the Global Advocacy for the Uyghur Human Rights Project. You know, to it, when you mentioned the shaved heads, there was a satellite picture, I guess, about two weeks ago, showing Uyghurs being herded onto a train, uh, you know, which brings back the horrific, vivid memories of people put into cattle cars and on their way to the death camps. Uh, are you familiar with that? Did you see that news report at all where the That's Uyghurs were? right. It was drone footage leaked from somewhere, you know, and again, this is a a total 24-hour network, facial recognition, phone app tracking, high-tech surveillance state with cameras on every street corner. There's amazing photographs. Sorry, this is radio. If you Google, you know, cameras on street corners in, in the Uyghur region or in Xinjiang, you'll see some, some intersections have 14 or 20 cameras with facial recognition. How is it that you got drone footage? That's still a mystery. First came out last October, was re-shown again at the, the time you saw it just recently. It is hundreds of people identically dressed, sitting uh, cross-legged on the ground with their hands tied behind them and black uh, masks covering their head. They can't see anything, and they're all being guarded. It's almost like a one-to-one ratio of uh, black uniformed guards, which is a very, uh, like a SWAT team uniform, uh, guarded onto trains. And the, the parallels that are coming to your mind are exactly right. Um, a million people, possibly two, possibly more people taken away. And we've had reports of thousands, up to 10, 20,000 people at a time transferred secretly away from their homeland to faraway prisons on the eastern coast of China. What is happening to those people? How can you do it in such secrecy? This speaks to the uh, the really horrifying ambitions of the Chinese state to crush the Uyghur people and uh, make sure that the Uyghur people no longer exist. Uh, the identity is crushed. So we have this large-scale persecution on the basis of ethno-religious identity, and this really should shock the conscience of the world. Well, I was going to ask you finally, I mean, what should the response of the conscientious nations then be? There need to be consequences for China's actions. How can we continue business as usual with a modern nation state that is trying to take its place in the world, has a seat on the UN Security Council, a permanent, right? China is one of the five permanent members, and yet it's violating every principle of the United Nations to uphold human dignity and world peace. So this um, government of China should, it, it, it should make people think twice before they do, nowadays, you can't do tourism, but, you know, our, our economies are quite intertwined. And there is forced labor. Uyghurs are put into factories as well as prisons. And those factories are producing cotton garments, face masks, 
and even these hair weaves that are suspected to be, to be made from potentially the shaved heads of the women prisoners in these prisons. So this kind of thing should make your screen crawl. We do have um, America, a bill in the Congress, so your listeners are very, I would urge listeners to call up um, Senator, uh, you know, uh, the government of Canada um, and ask the government of Canada uh, to put in legislation just like is in the U.S. Congress to uh, ban all imports from, from the Uyghur region because the complicity with forced labor should, should horrify our consumers and should be horrifying the companies. Yeah, I would add to that list, by the way, uh, organ harvesting, which has gone uh, as well, has been documented. But, you know, to the point you just made, we've got a new leader of the Conservative Party of Canada just two weeks in, Aaron O'Toole, in a press conference yesterday. He did say, the quote is, the world should not let China off the hook on the Uyghurs just to grow our exports. Uh, so he staked out a conscientious stand on that and uh, would that other leaders of the uh, free world and the democracies would follow suit but uh, remains to be seen he's not our prime minister uh, or at least not yet but that is uh, the conscientious play that needs to be affected louise i really appreciate you coming on and uh enlightening us all as to the situation because it's an important one and if never again is to be a, uh, more than a slogan this is one uh, time that we should all act and act in concert uh very much appreciated your time this afternoon i'm so glad you covered it and thanks to your listeners for paying attention we thank you, Louisa Grieve again, Director of Global Advocacy for the Uyghur Human Rights Project. There was a tragedy on Woodbine Beach today. The Marine Rescue Operation saw that uh, there were several people injured in a boating accident. Boat went into the rocks. One person transported. Vital signs absent has succumbed to their injuries, pr- pronounced deceased in the hospital. Uh, officers had located a seventh, seventh injured party, four people taken to hospital in total, three treated on scene, and an investigation is underway. But joining us on the line right now, eyewitness to today's boat crash, Christopher Buccella. Christopher, good to have you on the Oka Show. Good afternoon. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, spell it all out. What did you see around what time? How many in the boat? And uh, give it to us all. Sure. I was at the beach at around 1245 this afternoon just enjoying reading my book and the sights and sounds of you know, what the beach has to offer. And there was a boat that was traveling westbound through the lake, quite close to the beach area where there were kids and families swimming. The boat came across at a rapid rate of speed and the water's quite shallow there, especially around where the sand is. And the boat took a steep turn. It nearly tipped over. And then once it righted itself back up, the boat, hit the rocks at full speed so in other words did it look to you like uh, maybe the intent was to uh come close and then swerve away but whoever was in operating uh, operation of the boat lost control i'd assume so i would i'll tell you john that the boat was traveling very very fast and i know seeing other boats traveling through the water this afternoon they were not going nearly at that same speed and so my assumption is that the boat hit the sand it nearly tipped over, righted itself, and then must have skidded, lost control, and then it, it made its way right into the rocks. The boat was going at full speed, and you could hear the throttle and the engine revving while the boat was you know, parked up on the rocks as well. Yeah, I saw the video, a short video of that. It looked like uh, there was no attempt to miss the rocks or anything like that, or even slow down, as you say. But you would notice this boat earlier that it was uh, in shallow water. How many people were on that boat at the time? 
from what I saw, it looked like five or six. When the boat hit the rocks, almost immediately I saw two people jump off. I don't know if they jumped to avoid the crash or if they jumped because of the impact of the crash, but the boat hit the rocks quickly and the sound was piercing. Everyone on the beach saw it. Everyone on the beach saw what they were doing. Uh, people were up on their feet. It didn't look bad, but you knew it was bad. Yeah, as uh, we pointed out, one person was uh, reported vital signs absent since deceased, taken to the hospital. So uh, how soon before the Marine units came to the scene to, uh, I guess, assist in any kind of recovery here or whatever it was that was necessary? How soon was that? So the first responders there were the lifeguards. And immediately there were a couple of lifeguards out on paddle boats and they rushed straight to the scene. And I'd say the ambulance maybe arrived 10 minutes thereafter. Uh, the lifeguards were attending to the individual, individuals that were there rushing across the beach and obviously called emergency services straight away. So I want to say maybe there was a, a, a 10 to 15 minute window before we saw some first responders. And did you see some of the people who were in that boat actually uh, recovered sort of wandering around or just sitting there uh, some I guess, having, uh, you know, survived it. But uh, did you notice any of that? I did. I saw three people who were sitting off to the side, clearly in shock. Uh, from where I was sitting, too, it looked like there was someone who was on the boat and they were not conscious at the time. I don't know if this was the person who had succumbed to the injuries. But yeah, so I, like I said, a couple of people sitting out, certainly shaken up and in shock. And then a, a couple of people just seemed really, really scattered. There were a number of lifeguards there as well, so... In the melee of it all, it was sort of hard to tell who was who. Christopher Buccella is with us. Eyewitness to today's boat crash claimed a life at Woodbine Beach. Seven people in total uh, that were uh, reported by the police, uh, one since deceased, as I say. So uh, these people, in, could you paint sort of a picture demographically? Were they younger people, middle-aged, boys, girls, men, women? What kind of uh, makeup was it? From what I saw, it looked like predominantly men. I, I couldn't tell you about race or age group but it looked like it was a boat full of you know younger gentlemen right and the boat itself i mean uh it was a power boat single engine fairly big medium size i mean relative to holding seven people yeah medium size it looked like one of those sea dew boats if you've ever seen anything like that that they're sort of jet powered or propelled they push the water through i mean the boat was loud the boat was big uh, the kids in the water were excited at first because the boat produced a wake through the beach, which I know is not allowed based on the distance that the boat was traveling uh, at the beach there, too. And it was just traveling so fast, uh, sort of skidding over the water. And then I, I knew it was going to hit the rocks. There was no way that the boat was going to be able to turn in time, not at that rate of speed. The individual did not let off on the throttle. And then sort of the rest is, is the story. Yeah, and Christopher, I mean, uh, as people were witnessing this, were there comments to the effect that what the hell are they thinking they're doing? Absolutely. I think uh, most people on the beach knew pretty much straight away that you'd have to be pretty, you know, pardon my language here, pretty stupid to do something and to travel at that type of speed, especially so close to the shore. I don't know if they were the owners of the boat, if they were people who were renting the boat. I did see a little area where someone was renting sea dews. So, yeah, they put themselves in a pretty sticky situation. What I saw a picture of the boat uh, on the rocks, it looked like it had uh, at least some speakers on a rack over the top. Uh, were there tunes played as these people were coursing through the water at all? Do you know? 
No, I didn't hear any music from where I was sitting. I see. Uh, The engine drowned anything out anyway. It was, as you say, uh, dangerously close to shore and the shallows, uh, which may have caused it to go out of control. But uh, that's the eyewitness account of Christopher Buccella. Christopher, I appreciate your coming on this afternoon. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where needn't have happened water safety is uh something that we've got to keep reminding people boats you can't trifle with uh hope you can go back to the beach and enjoy your bucolic uh reading of books and other such uh you know and not get disturbed by this kind of scene again appreciate your time christopher thanks for having me have a great afternoon <laughs> that's that's guar. Uh, in case you're not familiar, there are only two kinds of people: those who love guar and those who haven't heard them yet. You just heard a snippet there of uh, their latest cool place to park. And uh, by the way, this is the 30th anniversary. I guess they've rolled out Scum Dogs of the Universe, a seminal disc, which is now available in all the different idioms and platforms and all the rest of that. And we thought it might be as good an occasion as any to talk to their lead singer Blothar, who has joined us here on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Blothar, how are you keeping, my friend? Well, I'm great. You know, it's about as hot as the surface of the sun down here in Sarasota, Florida, but uh, doing my best to keep cool. Yeah, well, I was going to say, uh, you can't be wearing all the antlers and the rest of the paraphernalia with the shoulder pads and everything. Like, you Take those off and chill just a bit. No, no, I can't take them off. I wish I could take them off. <laughs> a nightmare down here. Hunters keep trying to shoot me and mount me on the front of their pickup truck. I was going to say, you know, that's an impressive I rack. I, I mean that in a nice way, too. How many points on that rack that you're wearing? Uh, it's, about, it's about a 14-point rack. <laughs> All right. Stay away from the Duck Dynasty, guys. Hey, Blothar, i got to ask you, I mean, Scum Dogs of the Universe, uh, 30 years, has it really been that long? Time really flies, doesn't it? It, it really does fly. And, and you know, it, actually, uh, in, a previous, in a previous life, I have a, a close connection to uh, Beefcake the Mighty, who uh, was singing the song that you just heard. Um, And, uh, you know, in another lifetime, we were the same person. Um, And and then we split through the process of mitosis, like a cell. Uh, Uh, And and I wound up uh, being the lead singer of the band. But, uh, yeah, back then, I was mostly, you know, I was mostly the bass player. Yeah. And uh, I miss those days, you know, 30 years ago. It's been, it's literally been 30 years since I picked up a bass guitar. That's not true, but uh, it feels like a long time. Well, you've evolved, let's just say. I mean, uh, with the passage of time, there's a maturation that's overcome Gwar. Uh, and by the way, we should point out, you're not from Earth, but actually the deepest recesses of space, even though the song we were hearing there, Cool Place to Park, it looks like you're uh, performing somewhere in Dante's Inferno, like the 7th to 12th ring or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> right. And then we're on, like, Interstate 95. It's, 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 a, it's, a, rough, it's a rough scene. Yeah, we're well, you, from outer space, way past Uranus. You, you go out there <laughs> and take a ride, and, and you'll find us. And by the way, uh, the video for Cool Place to Park, you know what I really like? The high production values, by the way. That's great, man. I mean, those, those were the days. <laughs> give us some cocaine and fried chicken, and there you have it. Well, well, yeah, you got uh, four semi-naked men uh, who are pulling this giant chariot uh, with some demonic whipmaster there uh, against a green screen. That's me. <laughs> That's me. That's me with a whip. That's me. Right. Wow. Screen. I'm riding down the freaking highway. <laughs> and I'll get hit by a Mack truck. 
I noticed you're just in front of the 18-wheeler there, uh, how the guy had the good good sense to uh, give you a little bit of spacing. You guys were doing that social distancing before it was cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gwar is always... People always keep their distance from us. That's not a worry. Well, you know what? Uh, I would say otherwise. I mean, 30 years, that's longevity in the rock and roll business. And you guys, I mean, uh, you've taken it right over the top. Alice Cooper and uh, Kiss and then uh, Marilyn Manson, all these people are pikers. I mean, when it comes to performance art in costumes that uh, defy kind of description, unless you've seen it, you guys are the gold standard. Uh, How'd you achieve that, by the way? Whose brainchild was that? Well, uh, well, thank you. We, we, we appreciate it. Um, you know, we, well, I mean, one thing is that some of the people that you mentioned there in your comment, uh, we were big fans, right? Uh, uh, in the, in the early days, yeah, we paid a lot of attention to, and other bands too, you know, bands that had ideas, a concept, uh, Devo is a great example, mm. uh, you know, and just sort of moving that into the realm of, of, of heavy metal, um, and uh, you know, Kiss is sort of definitely a, an influence, and uh, and Alice Cooper for sure, especially the the long form narratives. Um, and you know, I mean, Guar's is a, a band of folks that realize how freaking boring it is to stand on stage in your street clothes or in some ridiculous wardrobe. And uh, and and you know, I mean, like, why do that when you could be Rob Halford times ten, right? Like, I mean. <laughs> It's just a lot more fun. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what it is. It, it, look, it sort of marries uh, thrash metal and comedy uh, together. I mean, this was sort of the sensibility right. that, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of art involved. There's a lot of, uh, you know, one thing that sets Gore apart from these other uh, rock and roll uh, outfits that you mentioned is that you don't really know, you know, who, who, who made uh, kisses costumes although i'm sure gene simmons claims credit for it can you imagine him back there sewing this ridiculous outfit um but you know the, the truth of the matter is that the, the members of guar are the are the the people who make the art and uh uh you know so it's one one big difference uh in in our group and others well, I, I just remember seeing uh, Odorous Urungus, Dave Brocky, who was the lead uh, of uh, of Guar. He had a, like uh, all kinds of space in his whatever it was, a warehouse or the garage where he had the costumes. I, do you guys have like one set of costumes that are consistent, or do you sort of metamorphose into different things as the uh, you know the inspiration comes to you? You'll find another set of antlers, maybe uh, the deer boots. Who's the guy wearing? <laughs> yeah, the hoofs. <laughs> I can't the deer hooves. Yeah, yeah. You know, first of all, I can't get over how much you sound like Dan Aykroyd trying to sound like a Canadian. But anyway, it's very pleasant. Thank you. I love it. Um, Just the facts, ma'am. You know, yeah. I mean, mean, yeah. We've we've got we've got all kinds of crazy stuff in our warehouse. Uh, You know, and, and some of our stuff is actually in museums now uh you, you know you're old <laughs> when you've got a museum exhibit of, of of an outfit you used to wear it's like it, i mean nothing in the smithsonian or anything but the valentine mm. museum in richmond virginia has a collection of uh, of, of of early guar costumes mm. yeah, that's because you're alter egos i guess uh you know the the life uh, forms that you would 
uh, sort of achieve or attain when you're on Earth is somewhere in Richmond, Virginia. But other than that, you guys come from, as I understand, it's Scumdogia. Uh, Scumdogia, yeah. Some of us are from Scumdogia. Some of us are from other planets. Uh, Blothar is actually from the planet of mist. I don't know exactly. I'm not sure why. I don't know. <laughs> a lot of weed involved in that. But anyway, it, it's... Uh, it's it's a it's a good backstory, and you know, so we've all, but Guar are definitely you know intergalactic, uh, intergalactic beings, uh, stranded on Earth in a sort of never-ending Gilligan's Island situation where we all all always almost get off planet, but somehow we uh, you know, and that's what most shows uh, Guar show revolves around uh, Guar trying to uh, just be a rock band and uh, and. and usually trying to escape the planet in some way. And, uh, you know, what do you know? It's just like, just like Gilligan's Island. It's all coconut bras and disappointment. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, it's like the old show, Patrick McGowan in the prisoner, you know, you think you're getting away and then the beach ball comes and swallows you up. Uh, don't know if you're yeah. familiar. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. What a great show. People don't even understand how great that show is. Yep. Well, you know, we're relating. Blothar is with us, lead vocalist for Guar. By the way, 30th anniversary of Scum Dogs of the Universe. I understand it's a limited edition box set and uh, almost sold out. Over the years, how many copies of this uh, magnum opus were actually sold? Any idea? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know uh, approximately. Uh, I mean, I, I think Scum Dogs, Scum Dogs went gold. I don't know. I mean, I can't. At this point, I've got so many gold records, I can't even keep track. <laughs> uh, but, but, but I, I, I mean, I, I've got a, I've got something here. It looks like uh, probably so I, back in the old days. You know, you had to sell five hundred thousand copies of a record to get gold record. Mm. Um, I think I think that's changed somewhat now. But yeah, I mean, you know, in thirty years, something's going to sell. <laughs> well, but, yeah. uh, but I was going to say, you're not of this planet, so it might be molybdenum, which means a right. whole lot more, you know, outside of our particular galaxy. So, I mean, who's to judge? This is all relative. By the way, let me ask you seriously, though, in COVID-19, the visual act that you guys are, I mean, uh, you're not going out performing live, or are you? Can you do that? Or are you doing all these sort of virtual concerts? How, how are you performing these days? Yeah, I mean, that, that's what most uh, what most acts are doing, is going into a virtual concert of course for us like you know it, it's been great i mean we don't like to really hang around with each other anyway so this is perfect <laughs> we, we don't have to see one another and we communicate only by uh, over the telephone or the computer uh, which is much more convenient uh and uh you know basically we're we're working the way that we always were all of our records are recorded over the telephone anyway they sound so terrible um <laughs> so you know i mean basically it's exactly uh, of course, of course, obviously we can't play shows. We can't do, uh, do those things that we do, but it's actually had the, the effect of, of getting us to focus more on, uh, writing new material and also, uh, coming up with, uh, with, a, a we have a show, uh, that, that we've been doing called, uh, Undead, uh, oh, was Undead from Antarctica. And, uh. <laughs> Yeah, so we, we've been, <laughs> I can't even remember the name of it, but that's, that's fun. You know, we've been making that show and uh, working on episodes of it uh, to roll out. And we've been doing a lot of, a lot more filming uh, and a lot more uh, different types of activities like uh, comic writing and, 
things like that. So it's actually been a, a fairly productive time for us, even though we can't play shows. But yes, we are planning on doing a live stream event uh, here uh, in the future. I, I can't give a specific date, uh, but we are going to do one of those. Um, and a lot of bands are doing that. Uh, I think it works. Uh, and we're also going to be doing a, uh, a drive-in performance. Uh, mm. uh, people can come up in their cars and uh, I'm really curious how I, I, I have a feeling like it's just going to, you know, at a drive-in performance, does it, does it just turn into a demolition derby at a guar show? <laughs> right. It's all bets are off for that one, for sure. You know, Blothar, just uh, kind of curious if over the 30-year span, and you followed it, obviously, have the audiences changed? I mean, uh, are you st- seeing, like, second-generation fans now coming to your shows or before COVID-19? Oh, oh that's right, yeah. Yeah, nothing makes you feel any better than, uh, you know, meeting a young kid who says, you know, my grandfather likes you guys a lot. (laughs) That's a, you want to meet granddad for sure. But listen, you know, you guys are certainly a a live experience uh, as much as anything else. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, In many ways, you're taking the piss out of rock and roll at the same time as you're having a good time. Because it does uh, put the comedy component uh, largely into this thrash metal and the sounds that you'll hear on the Magnum Opus 30th Anniversary Edition, Scum Dogs of the Universe. Cool place to park is something else you want to check out. But Guar is always a treat. Blothar, good to talk to you. Uh, Stay cool in Sarasota down there. Will do. There you go, Blothar from Guar. Wish this was a visual medium sometimes. you got to see it uh, if you didn't understand any of the lyrics and the tunage. But, uh, yeah. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, September 3rd, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.